HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wild Alaska Pollock, the fish of the future. Learn more and try a free sample at wildakpollock.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. It's Thanksgiving, so we're talking turkey with sweet potato casserole, stuffing, cranberry sauce, and pecan pie. But we're also discovering some surprising truths about this holiday. As it turns out, roasted turkeys are actually nowhere near the original Thanksgiving tables. In fact, most of the foods we eat for Thanksgiving today weren't eaten in Plymouth. And you know, a lot of the dishes came about, well, because of the products that were on the shelves and the marketing that told us this is the product we should use. Every once in a while, though, the consumer creates the food trend. Care to top the turducken, anyone? Uh, I've got to give credit to this fellow that said, this is the best pile of meat I've ever had, and then said, but if you added bacon... Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. So while we talk on the show a lot about how and why we eat what we eat, Kim really Jenkins is here to tell us why we wear what we wear. A fashion educator at the New School and Pratt Institute, she recently curated a few exhibitions that show us how race has affected the fashion system in terms of visibility, aesthetics, and power. And joining us, too, with a shorter intro because she's been here on the show before is Kimberly Cho. Kimberly is a writer, host of HRN's Recommended Reading, and the co-director of the beloved Food Book Fair. Thank you both for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So I actually think this um, the intro that we just listened to speaks a lot to what we're about to talk about <laughs> in that... Um, I forgot what he said, but he was talking about how the consumer creates a lot of the trends. Um, mm-hmm. Can you guys both speak to that, actually, from your various industries? Oh, wow. Um, <clears throat> I guess on topic with our conversation today, when it comes to how we consume things, um, my work is interested in kind of understanding why we gravitate towards what we gravitate towards when it comes to fashion and beauty. Um, Like how we consume clothing, what we think is cool, what we think is beautiful in the cosmetic industry. And um, our consumer choices are honestly only as good as our options, like what's out there in terms of representation. Um, It also 
when we're talking about consumption and trends um, and the power of the consumer, it gets me thinking about power sharing um, when it comes to who is making um, our clothes and who's behind the trends, you know, who's being, whose style is being co-opted or appropriated or plagiarized. Um, so I don't know. I, I think we'll get into it in this conversation, but it's got me thinking about power and representation when it comes to trends and visibility and aesthetics and all that good stuff. And with food and writing about food, do you feel like there are certain writers that maybe lead certain questions or make certain questions more central than others? And how does that affect how we consume media? Sure. I mean, I think writers and editors have great power depending on what kind of platform that they have and how what they write about is disseminated and like where you decide to place a story in a newspaper or a magazine or where on the homepage of a website certainly can contribute to what stories are read, what people are paying attention to. And um, I think that is, I think that sort of gets to your question. Yeah, we'll dive deeper. Um, so how I usually open this episode or this show is the question, where are you from, With which for people of color, it's kind of a hostile question, so I'm kind of reappropriating <laughs> the question. So for both of you, I'm Kimberly Jenkins. Where are you from, and how has that gotten you to where you are in fashion today? It's going to feel like you're talking to the same damn person, <laughs> these two Kims from Michigan. Um, <laughs> two Kims from Michigan, a podcast. <laughs> That's our next. That's, That's our, our next, next Um <laughs> I was born in Detroit and grew up in Texas in a town that very, 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 very few people have ever heard of. So I just say Dallas-Fort Worth, but it was Trophy Club, Texas is where I was raised. Um, this very li lily white golf town, affluent golf town, where I became used to being the only one for, I mean, since as long as I could remember, um, from childhood all the way up to my late teens or about 20 years old. Um, Growing up there definitely shaped, for better or for worse, um, how I saw myself. Um, and so when it comes to where I'm from and where I'm coming from, now where I stand as an educator, um, both physically and just you know mentally, I'm coming from a place of dealing with like a lack of representation, self-hatred, low self-esteem, all that good stuff. Um, and it's been through the work of... Um, finding books on my own, finding scholars on my own, getting studying anthropology and art history and getting into fashion studies later, way later on, that, you know, and seeing new images and trying to be part of the change I wanted to see, that I kind of moved myself to a better place and have worked to kind of pull other kids up who went through the same experience as me of just being like the only one of, you know, whatever, you know, minority group you come from, um, so that they can feel empowered. Um, so, so that is where I'm coming from on a couple of levels. I like that reframing of the question. I was born outside of Detroit and I spent my youth years there and I went to college in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and then I moved to New York right after. And I've been in New York for almost 10 years. I have been thinking of a different way to answer the question of where you're from. I don't like to say where I grew up because I feel especially like my growth and my education, especially when it comes to talking about 
food as power and food as a transformative tool and the different things that people do every day and have been doing to transform their communities and to build with each other. A lot of that came from people who I consider peers and who I can t consider my teachers and mentors as an adult. And those are folks that sort of raised me in my thinking. And that doesn't fit with this question of where you grew up in a, in a geographical place. So I was, I can say geographically and like where I grew up, I could say the city of Detroit, the city of New York, my food community here, my organizing community in Detroit. But um, yeah, so I'm still working on language for that question. But, uh, but I do really like how you say where you're coming from. So where I'm coming from is a place of talking about food as um, a way to talk about other things, uh, food as an incredible tool for people to tell their own stories and as an entry point for folks to get other folks that might be listening, they might be engaging with, to sort of disarm them in order to talk about other stuff. Um, but also food is a, a, I mean, it's a beautiful celebratory, it, it can be a beautiful celebratory, pleasureful thing. And we deserve to have nice things and, and gather around tables and break bread and share with each other. So that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, you both noted that tension that I really like in that question, where when people ask me where you're from, and I say I'm from California, I feel like that's a really inadequate answer because I don't really identify with the OC or surfers or anything like that. Um, but since, so you both talk about coming, coming of age in New York City and your learning and um, your career. And so how do you feel like the reality versus expectations has turned out to be in your, ex your expectations of New York City? Like, did you, is it as cosmopolitan and accepting as you thought it would be? Kim, I'll, uh, I'll let you start since you've been here longer. I've been here over seven, seven and a half years. Kim's got three years on me. Um, that's a good question. I mean, I think it can be as cosmopolitan as you make it. I think your life can also be as narrow and as basic as you make it. I, I don't know if people are always conscious of that. And I try to be, I, do, I try not to yuck anybody's yum. <laughs> um, so I like to think that folks live how they live at least folks, and, and, and I'm talking about people who have the privilege of being able to move freely and be self-determining that they're making a choice to live however they live. Um, and it's another question, when folks can't move freely and cannot be self-determining. Um, I mean, I think for me, New York, I, I came here and I, it was sort of, I, I got a job and I came here and I I sort of decided on the job and wasn't thinking that hard about ending up here. I didn't know it was going to be a forever goal. I, I kind of knew that I would end up here at some point and then something happened my senior year of college and I ended up here working at a newspaper and that turned out to be a terrible job for me and a terrible fit and I hate it. It was really not good um, for my personality and my self-esteem and all this stuff, but then I ended up here and then I never left. Um, and I think just the energy of New York City, um, the the variety of people, the activity, I feel like it really nourishes me and has enriched my life. And the more that I travel um, and the more that I spend time outside of here, it's sort of reinforced for me that, that this is a kind of home for me, even though I feel like I'll be spending less and less time here. For me, um, New York was a goal all the way since 
since I was a teenager, I was determined to move here. I got here a lot later than I had planned, but I got here. And, you know, I, much like uh, anyone else who had dreams or ambitions of moving to New York, you know, you see it through TV, films, magazines, and you just think, I want to live that life. And so, um, so I pursued that. And I um, found a program called, uh, it's a master's program called Fashion Studies. And it was just getting off the ground at Parsons School of Design. Um, I was just a couple of years out of my bachelor's degree in anthropology and art history. And I just thought, oh, this is perfect. This is everything. So I sold everything in my apartment and gave away my cat, Kevin. I mean, it just, <laughs> I had to give up Kevin. everything. Kevin, please forgive me. Kevin, where uh, are you? He was not happy. Um, but, you know, tying it back to food, the whole reason, though, I knew I wanted to move to New York, but Kevin would sit on my lap, and every night we would watch Anthony Bourdain. And I just thought, I want to do that. What he does for, like, food, you know, I want to do that. Um, I want to be him. And so... Um, we, so I got here, and I went through the program, and it, it was just really a great experience. Um, I don't know if I've had blinders on in any sort of way, but I moved here in 2011 and just, like, loved it from the jump. Um, well, technically, my parents and I visited in 2010 to check out schools, and then we decided on, or I decided on, um, Parsons in 2011. And from, like, the moment I moved here, it was just like, wow, it was sort of, like, just walking through the street everything was just like fabulous it was like coming to America you know so <laughs> I was just like I loved everything people screaming at each other across the street I was like I love this place and so I guess to answer your question it, it, it was as cosmopolitan it was to borrow from cliches you know it was just the place where you know you could just make it everyone's hustling everyone's you know there's always a party or there's you know serendipity happening and there's just all these great and valuable connections you can make um it hasn't let me down since, you know, I, I've just really loved it, made lifelong friends and met people who just wanted to help me succeed. And just, you know, I just, New York is just this place where you just keep, I love not having a car like I did in Texas because, you know, it just really brings us closer together. And so that just opens up these opportunities to just always run into each other, or just have, you're just like left to your own devices to be on foot or on a train and just really have to connect all the time with people. Um, so I love that. I love connection. So, so yeah, but those are the things I love about New York and being here. And it's really just sort of the driving force of my, my work in some ways here. So even if I do have ambitions, hopefully next year or beyond to, kind of live in other places or or spend some time doing my work in other places, but I'd really love for New York um, to be my home base. I'm wearing a gray curly lamb's wool coat today, which is very the same the same color where it's like silver gray to like a darker uh, ash gray, which is a similar uh, color as Eddie Murphy wears in Coming to America. It, now that I look at it, yes, all you're missing is the hat. I'm just missing <laughs> the little peaked hat, and he's like declaiming how great it is, and they land in Queens, and like immediately all their shit gets stolen, and it's like <laughs> snowing, and he's like, "This is amazing," you know. Yeah, in both your answers, there is that common thread of just dreaming of this life in New York City and kind of finding it, or maybe finding it here, and that's the what appealed to me in looking at schools here. Um, but I feel like 
living in New York City, do you feel like there's this collapsing of trends or is there really this proliferation, right? Because I feel like mm. per borough, there's also a style, right? Like Fort Greene people dress a certain way and Bushwick Definitely. people dress a certain way. And so do you feel like... I was just... Yeah, no, sorry. No, no, <laughs> I just get so it. excited. just want to dive right in. Yeah, I was just seeing that. Um, I moved... So when I first moved here, I lived for almost two years in the financial district, which is its own animal of like how you see people dress. It's very conservative. It's not a place to rock the boat, really. Um, and then I moved to Bush- Bushwick after that. Uh, lived in Bushwick for about three years. And then I always wanted to move to Fort Greene. So that's where I am now. And I moved there a year ago. And it's it's very different. What it, it, some of the lower Brooklyn styles are just this very smart, chic <laughs> woman on the move with her clogs and and smart mohair or wool, you know, <laughs> jacket and her tote bag and some smart level uh, leather shoulder crossbody bag that now she can afford because she's at some high up position in her job. And so so coming here, like coming back to Bushwick now, like today. Um, it was just like, oh, wow, Bushwick style. Like, it was just, it's just so clear. Like, it, there's a look. Um, so it's so different after kind of crawling out of my Fort Greene bubble and just seeing all these people with just sort of this smart, traditional, almost very Williamsburg kind of dress, but a little different. Um, yeah, you, you definitely how would see you, these what styles. Would you, how would you describe the look? Can you give us an example outfit? You'll see, like... There's definitely punk influence. It's very DIY, um, whatever works kind of um, vibe to it. Um, I guess if we were to just create like keywords just floating around, it's authenticity, DIY, making it work, um, just humble, um, tight, torn, um, <laughs> pierced, um, or, you know cuffed rolled up there's always something rolled up in some sort of way mm. i see uh flooding flooding pants high waist pants <laughs> um i could just go on and on <laughs> but i mean yeah. i think it has to do with age and it has to do with class which yeah. often those are there's overlap there too and like who lives in what neighborhoods which we can't deny that wasn't always the bushwick style that's not to say that this is the style of bushwick that's how it is now with this sort of like influx of young people who've kind of taken over bushwick now looks nothing like the groups of people who were living here before, they'd probably say, that's not how I dress. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, so I am definitely coming from a point of like speaking to gentrification, even in Fort Greene of like how, you know, the style is there. I moved to Fort Greene because it's so diverse. I loved how diverse it was. It was a very black neighborhood. Um, that was like a place that really Spike Lee put on the map. But now being around there, it's a lot has changed. And, one thing I've been observing is there was like this little shop across the street I saw um, that's like an homage to Brooklyn. And it I couldn't help but think of how you have, uh, like the process of gentrification is like coming in, gutting the place out, pushing the people out, but then turning around and saying, this is an homage to Brooklyn, you know, or I'm going to sanitize the whole area and then represent everything that you built here. So like, this is good old Brooklyn or spread love, it's the Brooklyn way. But meanwhile, like you're pulling a quote from Biggie Smalls, but then you've like pushed out everyone who was, you know, basically he grew up around and with in those parts of Brooklyn. I just find that incredibly bizarre. Like everywhere I go from restaurants to shops, it's just like, we've just sanitized Brooklyn, but now we're like making it a brand of, you know, that draws upon hip hop culture. 
Latinx culture, you know, to everyone who built this place with their bare hands. So. Do, you, do you remember, this is probably, probably right, you know, maybe six or seven years ago now, there was a restaurant slash shop, and maybe it was just a shop on Houston, uh, maybe like West Soho almost, called The Brooklynier. No. And it was a store that sold things that were made in Brooklyn, but it was in Manhattan. <laughs> Twist. Twist. It was like almost a cosmic joke. I don't think it was open for very long, Mm. but it was like this idea. I mean, I think at that point it was like very, there had become this sort of like Brooklyn indie aesthetic. And there were a lot of people that were making consumer packaged goods and like cute stuff. I don't know, like leather keychain pouches (laughs) or whatever. And then like sea salt caramels (laughs) and you could get them in the store and you never had to cross the river. I mean, I think, at, you know, the perfect confluence of, and I say this facetiously, the perfect confluence of gentrification and capitalism and trend thirst can turn into sort of reductive, uh, things can be reduced to the point of um, cosmic joke. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, I didn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. To those points, I, I agree with that. Like, I, I feel like there's is this kind of widespread sanitation, but how is the quote unquote Brooklyn aesthetic and Brooklyn trend still viable? Like, why is it still so identifiable? Like, it, in California, someone seeing one of us would know, like, oh, they live in Brooklyn in maybe this area. Like, what about it is so recognizable? The sanitized, reductive version, or just like the original? Like, if we were to shoot back over to like 1993 or something the sanitized version um i don't know if people know where i live when they see me but maybe i can't tell because i'm inside my own body yeah someone (laughs) might like in oakland or something might not be able to tell like kim from where she lives and how she dresses to like a woman on the upper east side or something i don't know if it would be that clear but i guess my knee-jerk response to you would have been like whiteness (laughs) you know it's just like seeing um people who are just kind of repackaging good old Brooklyn in, you know, these cute, kitschy, you know, like in, in a jewelry shop in Williamsburg or in Prospect Heights, you know, just how they're making beer and crafting it in a certain way. You know, it's just like, it's just in the way it's repackaged that's a little bit um, more palatable and aesthetically pleasing um, for people to accept. Um, yeah, that, that's my response so far of how I see it. Um. I think my thing is like, I'm trying to be careful of, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in the Midwest and I try not to enter there with my like coastal elitism. I, I sort of joke about this mm-hmm. and be like, ah, we were doing kale Caesar salads in 2012. <laughs> That's sort of like a running joke between me and a, another friend of mine. Um, a couple years ago, we went to this, really hot restaurant in Detroit and that's what they had on the menu and she said something about that and then she was like I can't believe I said that that was terrible Um, there's nothing wrong with kale Caesar salads there's nothing wrong with we have to check our privilege in those ways too though even as women of color living here it's like me wagging my finger going to Idaho or something where's your oat milk you know yeah I don't know. Like, I, I'm afraid I'm going to, like, just, like, take this conversation um, into, like, a 
shame spiral. <laughs> but um, where am I going with this? Well, I mean, I just, you know, <laughs> one other thing I've been thinking about is I sit here and, you know, complain about all these things, but I also, I'm just, I was thinking about this yesterday. I was like having my coffee with oat milk yesterday, looking out the window in Fort Greene and just at a coffee shop I go to. And I was just like, but I'm a beneficiary of all this oh, too, yeah. you know, and just, you know, and I'm just as part of this. Yeah. I mean, know? I think, you know, so there's a, you know, just thinking about how food trends and clothing trends and also just cultural trends and general travel. I was at a talk in Detroit a couple of days ago, um, actually, and the writer and the chef and cultural critic Tunde Wei was, he made a reference to the Devil Wears Prada and that scene where the blue Andy, sweater. Yeah, the blue sweater, which you have also made reference to where Andy, uh, the main character played by Anne Hathaway and Miranda Priestly, who is played by Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep are talking about how things go from top down. And she's like, even this blue sweater, which starts on, was it like Dries Van Noten or like YSL or something, something like, like that? A few seasons back, then you see it like recycled down to J. Crew, and from J. Crew, it's recycled down to H&M. H&M, it ends up at Target, and suddenly mm-hmm. it's the same color blue sweater you see everywhere. Yeah. Um, so that everything is connected. Um, so a kale Caesar salad or, a, you know, a blue blue cashmere sweater and a certain kind of blue um, that you know I th- certainly cultural trends can move that way and sometimes they can turn into um, so ubiquitous to the point where it seems um, funny but I think What's important is to think of when you get to the point where you're eating a mixed salad shaker that has kale in it. And yo, I love the mixed salad shaker in the '90s. That was my favorite thing. Um, where it's if folks are listening, they we this hasn't been out in a long time, but it's a it's a McDonald's cup and it looks like a smoothie cup where there's like the covered rounded top and you put the salad in there, you put the salad dressing and you shake it up, and then you eat it out of this plastic cup. But anyway. Um, when you get to the point where you have a salad at McDonald's that has kale in it or like goji berries or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, or you or you see like an advertisement where it's like vinyl is the new, like, I don't know, like print is the new vinyl or something, which mm-hmm. is an actual ad that I have seen. Um, what? It, it kind of, uh, like, I think just sort of like making sure that when you're, Engaging with stuff like that, um, that you can, that you have some sense of history. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are the creator of any of these products or advertisements or rhetoric, um, because I think that gives greater depth and it makes things more interesting. And without it, sometimes things can be corny as fuck. Mm-hmm. And it creates My thing is like, is this disrespectful and is it corny as fuck? If it is, ignore. It could, it could facilitate. <laughs> valuable connections or it could um sever connections it could pull people farther apart um one thing i wanted to step back uh back before going into appropriation um or copying or whatever you want to call it um is also just thinking of like with me being a beneficiary of living in gentrified neighborhoods which i have like even in bushwick i was in a gutted out building that was like this kind of mid-rise glossy one of those glossy polished sticks out like a sore thumb amongst all the other historic buildings um is sort of also when we are talking about all this this conflation of like race or ethnicity or the gentrified with 
or no, sorry, conflating whiteness automatically with um, some of the products or outgrowths of gentrification. So like a kale salad or these kind of creative menus that we see um, or um, some of the clothes, the clothing styles, these maybe minimalistic clothing styles that we see becoming popular. I, I'm also leery about like um, just conflating that with whiteness or just saying that this is just the dress or the food mm-hmm. of white people because then it also excludes us um, from you know being part of innovating menus or innovating dress practices. Um, so I just want to add that to the conversation also that I don't want it to turn into just a black white issue or white against Asian, you know, just it's, that it's just white people making all of this stuff. Cause there's people of color who are developing these menus too, that are probably have become sort of the, um, key ingredients of, um, that we see in gentrification. Um, there's people of color moving into gentrified communities, creating new businesses that are, can be cost prohibitive and very hipstery, you know? So it's, so I guess I just want to emphasize that it's also very complicated or this whole conversation is becoming increasingly complicated because it's not just like black or white or brown I think or white. There's, I think there's this conception of, I think there's this conception of white folks being the consumer, mm-hmm. even if that's not necessarily the intention. The target Which I think is consumer. interesting to sort of how to how to unpack that especially if you're a person of color creating creating stuff it's assumed the, the producer is white no and no, that the consumer is white too con- though i see it both ways um i don't always assume that the producer is white um but i i i often catch myself assuming that the consumer is white mm. i have the fault of sometimes just assuming which I had to check myself on with internalized racism of, you know, if I, I just automatically hear about a craft brewing company that just pops up in, you know, a part of Brooklyn, I'm, I'm just think I'm just imagining some white guys with beards, you know, and just like, and maybe some tattoos who've just like thoughtfully put together this, you know, this brew, this microbrew or something. Um, and I have to check myself on that, um, which is also just the plight of people of color, also the internalized racism where you're just so used to innovation oftentimes being at the hands of white people. Can we backtrack to the desire of drinking a microbrew? I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> Can we backtrack to the the kale shaker salad? I feel like there's also this I, Yo, McDonald's, I don't know if you make a kale <laughs> shaker. I wasn't prepared salad. for you to plug the McSalad shaker. I was not prepared for this. I feel Somebody like call me. There, there's like a more or there's the ominous side where like if there's heritage or race involved right where how about the like quote unquote southwest trend where the, with like the dream catchers and the tassels or even do or you guys Stevie remember? Nicks style yeah yeah so can you talk a bit about how is that kind of appreciation for a race like do they get more visibility because of trends like this or is it I always again, I always find that so complicated because you know and people won't like this response. I just got into it with my my good friend who sent me a picture of a white woman in Africa on vacation. It was like her Instagram, and her and her boyfriend they just go kind of like traipsing around the world taking pictures in different countries. And she was with these natives of a tribe, and they're all smiling and surrounding her. And it was that very kind of you know, ubiquitous but problematic image that you see of just like the white person centered in it, and then just like this tribe of people all smiling around her, um, or just flanking her. And she's wearing some of the adornments and like a top of the people. It's it's sort of like a 
it, it looked sort of western fashioned a bit um, the way it was uh, the way the top was designed but then she was wearing like this big kind of um, bib necklace that was beaded and so you know my friend got upset just thinking I want to show you this picture Kim like aren't you angry isn't this appropriation isn't this offensive and so the complicated thing is though I see a lot of people traveling around and taking pictures with the people who live there and um, buying their jewelry and their clothing or maybe braiding their hair and just immersing themselves in the culture, even if it's just for that moment, and then taking home some souvenirs or like, oh, I'm going to take this beaded necklace home um, as a memory of my time with these people or at this place. And so it, 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 white people aren't the only ones who do this, first of all. And then secondly... It's, it gets even more complicated when you have people of color or people in these other regions or natives who kind of thrive on the tourism economy or love the fact that a white person's wearing it or love the fact that you're coming in, buying their stuff, taking pictures with them, and then you're going to go back to your maybe presumably, you know, quote-unquote developed country to show pictures on Instagram of it because it gives them some visibility. So it's very complicated because what do you do when the people in those countries thrive on tourism or love this stuff? Um... Who has the power? Um, they're getting money, you know, but, you know, and you'll see people of um, various ethnicities or regions of the world going to music festivals and having like a pop-up booth and selling their stuff. What do you do about them? Do you tell them? You know, do you wag your finger at them and say, don't you have any self-respect? Why would you be at this music festival selling, you know, your wares to these people who are just going to not know anything about it and then just go around wearing it, you know? Um so I guess I'm answering your question with even more just like complicated questions of like, what do we do, you know, with this? Because it's not so cut and dry. And, you know, what do we do like with this conversation that's been going on now for years about cultural appropriation or co-opting or fashion copying and scholar Minhoff Pham now has coined a term racial plagiarism, you know, because she was tired of the term cultural appropriation being overused and misused. So what do we do when it comes to cross-pollination of uh, of styles, of trends, of of what we have, because exactly the same conversation can be had in food. You know, what kind of world would this be if there's no cross pollination? And at what point in time can we actually say that there has not been cross pollination? Um, so it's very complicated, um, and it happens for better or for worse. You know, there is some exploitation that happens. But I'm also hesitant to just build walls. We're having enough in this political discourse about building walls, and I don't want to do that. Um, I don't want fashion students to feel like I can't. I basically just have to think in this one. You know, I, mean, I mean, it's just, you know, like, oh, I, I like this one region of China and, like, in the provinces of what they wear, but I guess I can't, can't you know, draw upon that now or use it as part of my research or I can't do an homage to these people in Ethiopia. I guess I can't do that either. So now we're just getting so angry about what's happening with cross-pollination that we're building walls, I see. And so I don't want to see that happen, and I'm just wondering what are some productive ways that we can share power um, and, and really just sort of enjoy, and I, forgive me if I sound Pollyanna, but just like enjoy this tapestry of culture and beauty that we all have, you know, as one world. I sound really like kumbaya right now, but, you know, I just, you know, I have to teach this stuff, but I also don't want students to get angry and feel hopeless about, you know, 
being inspired. I think, you know? I think if I can respond to what you're saying is one of the, the ways it gets tricky is when folks start making money off of mm-hmm. um, producing food or producing art or fashion, music, whatever it may be that is of a culture that is not anse- they're not ancestrally connected to in some way. And because we live in a capitalist world and make stuff and sell it, um, and people need money to live. Um, that's that's what been it happening gets for centuries. Yeah, it has been happening for centuries. And I think it's like we now are able to uh, sort of see it on a global scale around the world through um, the internet, through social media, mm-hmm. in a very different way than we used to be before. Um, and I think now this gives an opportunity and space and platform for folks and, and technology for people to actually talk about it. And I'm going to quote the chef and the writer, Samin Nosrat, who was speaking about this at a talk recently where she was like, I think one of the issues is that we don't have the language for this. Even using the words cultural appropriation, people often misuse it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll quote uh, a chef and organizer who's one of the founders of iCollective, this indigenous chef and heart um, grower and seed keeper and knowledge keeper collective, Car- M. Carlos Baca, he says everything is, is cultural appropriation in a way. Um, Carlos, forgive me if I'm misquoting you, but I think mm-hmm. it's, it's about like how do we engage in these stories, how do we engage um, in anything that we encounter in the world outside of our own selves in a respectful and intentional way? I think what's exciting is, well, you know, and where it starts is seeing the people who originate, you know, um, this this um, type of food or this style of clothing um, or craft tradition when the power's in their hands to make it and for us to buy directly from them. Um, I think that's where, that would be a good start, and, and we're seeing more of that in... Um, the U.S. in terms of restaurants and markets, you know, for this kind of for us, by us um, initiative. But, I mean, it's not too different from when if you travel to another country or an island and then, you know, the people there, it's always even better when you get it directly from them. Um, so how do we keep those traditions and those businesses or markets alive also? Um, so, again, so, so with travel and the tourism industry, that's what keeps all of those economies, those microeconomies alive. Um, but I guess coming to our very like postmodern discourse of like culture copying and appropriation, um, I think for me, just speaking as an educator, students are upset about exploitation of just feeling like, you know, when it comes to your identity, the way you present yourself and the shit that you're going through, Personally, like from an intersectional perspective, when you see someone who is enjoying privilege or is a beneficiary of white privilege, just saying, I love your Fulani braids. I'm going to do that. I love your bendy. I'm just going to smack that on my head and just go to a party tonight. You know, that's where it becomes problematic. And so um, it's upsetting, you know, because the personal is political. Yeah, and I feel like... um, (laughs) I think this is one of the things that Samin was touching on when she was talking about language. It's oftentimes that when we are faced with, um, we're confronted with something that has a lot of emotions tied to it. Like, mm-hmm. for example, like being a black woman of color and wearing braids and someone else complimenting you and then like 
borrowing that, so to speak. Uh, you might feel upset. You might feel that's kind of fucked up. But I think it sometimes in in the moment of that, it's hard to find the language for that, especially when it is an emotionally freighted issue. And I definitely have been in this conversation, I'll say an equivalent when it comes to like Chinese food or Taiwanese food. Mm-hmm. Um, and and sometimes it, the, the conversation is, is and I've gotten better at it over time just because I've had this conversation so many fucking times where at the beginning I'd just be like, I, I don't know, it just makes me angry and people would be like, ah oh, shit, you're just emotional mm-hmm. and like overthinking it, etc. Um, <coughs> but I think especially things that are really personal are hard to talk about and I and I think especially like publicly it's going to involve years of churning churning <laughs> on the internet and public talks for us to figure out a language for this as Samin says and I think but we just have to keep doing it because there's a lot of nuance and there's there's no way to find an easy answer of like how to engage with appropriation there are many different answers and questions springing from those answers and I think just, I'm not even going to say it's like the time we live in and people's attention spans. I just think it's fucking human nature. People don't have patience. And when people are dealt, deal with tension, they want to fix it immediately. I'm also a Gemini, Libra rising. So that's my <laughs> tendency. I'm like, fix it immediately. Um, blah. So maybe that's just me, but I'm pretty sure. Um, well, I don't know anyone that confronts a problem and is like, I'm going to meditate on it. It's well, cool. and I'm glad, I'm glad you also touched on, you know, when the personal becomes political in terms of dress, self-fashioning, if you will, and food, um, when these things become sort of forms of self-care or the way we dress ourselves, style ourselves, put our hair together, the food we cook, it's all based off of our resources and in spite of oppression or struggle. And so, yeah, it becomes very delicate or very offensive when, you know, you're going through things as a group of people across time or, you know, and the outgrowth is this style of food or this kind of food or this nourishing dish or the way you dress yourself or the way, you know, you walk and move and just like your body and everything and the way you regard your body, your appearance. Um, When someone, again, who is enjoying privilege just kind of, things that looks cool and just on the surface and doesn't do their homework and understand or get to know you um, when they decide, oh, I want to cook that or I want to create a restaurant in Brooklyn that's all about this kind of food. Um, you know, it it's about doing the homework. And so, again, as an educator, I'm going to do a shameless plug um, that I hope our listeners today will benefit from. And this is something I tell my students to just keep in their back pocket. It's The Three S's by Susan Scafidi. Um, Susan Scafidi has established a fashion law program at Fordham University, and over a decade ago, she published a book called Who Owns Culture? Her background, she's a lawyer, and so she's been talking about cultural appropriation forever. Um, And so she came up with the three S's. Um, I just love a rule of three, just because three is just always, it's just always for people, easy for people to just understand things and remember it. And so the three S's, um, the first S is source. Um, So where does something come from? The second S is significance. Is this item sacred or have, or is it, you know, kind of um, a tender issue? You know, is it um, an outgrowth of struggle or oppression? You know, is it tied up with someone's faith, you know? And then um, the third thing is um, similarity. 
So this is especially great for designers or chefs. How close are you emulating that object or food item uh, or recipe? Um, are you completely ripping it off, you know, or are you doing something that's sort of like an homage and just sort of just uh, playing off of it and, you know, nodding to the culture? So again, source, significance, and similarity. And always keeping that in mind if you're going shopping or you see a certain style or you're visiting a restaurant and, you know, if you get to speak to the chef, you know, can you grill them on those three questions? You know, do you know where, what the origin is of, you know, geographically or with this group of people or this culture? You know, how, what's the significance of it? Do you know how sacred this is? Also kind of tied to where it comes from. And then third, you know, just how closely are you emulating this? And if you are to copy it directly, would copying it directly offend that other person or that group of people or that culture? So if you're enjoying white privilege and then you're just ripping off soul food, but you're not doing any of the homework, you're not engaged with the community in any sort of way, you know, that could be, you know, problematic. This is a very lopsided break. Um, This is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. We'll get back to the three S's right after this. This episode is brought to you by Wild Alaska Pollock, the fish of the future. Wild Alaska Pollock is incredibly delicious, highly nutritious, and perpetually sustainable. Among the last frontier's many natural wonders, Wild Alaska Pollock just might be the state's best kept secret. This cousin to cod has lean, snowy white meat, delicate texture, and a mild flavor that makes it extremely versatile and tasty. Only pollock caught in Alaskan waters by U.S. fishermen can be labeled Wild Alaska Pollock. Unlike other pollock products, Wild Alaska Pollock is filleted and frozen just once within hours of being caught to preserve freshness, flavor, and texture. And now, food service professionals can try Wild Alaska Pollock for free. Request your sample at wildakpollock.com and discover the fish of the future. That's wildakpollock.com. Okay, and we're back with Meant to Be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. So I'm just going to have us telescope backwards a little bit. Um, Let's just talk about how we use food and fashion to construct or deconstruct identity day in, day out. Well, I was blathering on about the three S's. Kim, do you want to speak now? Uh, How do we use food and fashion to construct identity day in and day out? Um, I mean, for me... I work in in food, I produce events, um, I do some public speaking, and then also I I love gathering in my home and bringing people together um, and cooking for myself and knowing what I'm putting into my body uh, food-wise and then like who are the folks that I'm supporting if I shop at stores or at the farmer's market or or patronize their restaurants so for me um that food is a big part of who i am both in my personal life and my professional life which bleed together because i am in the the food and restaurant world which is sort of like a world of yeah it's like a a, um it's about hospitality and like bringing people together and, and whining and dining um and also i just enjoy it i i love i can i mean i can also shop anywhere 
But I, lo- I love spending time at the grocery store and like touching all the different squashes and the fruits and like figuring out what it is that I want to eat. And I get excited about stuff when the- it comes into season or someone's importing something that I love, like a new wine or something like that at my favorite wine store. Like that's a huge, that's like a, that brings me a lot of joy. It's so, true. I've been with her. Yeah. <laughs> she gets really into it. I get really into stuff. <laughs> so, you know, that's like a big part of, of who I am and like my day to day. I think... In sort of my ode to food and fashion, I I find them so similar um, as these sister industries um, because they're both, first of all, linked to our identity and our upbringing, the culture we come out of. Um, So how we make things, um, you know, the food that we cook and the food that was given to us growing up and then um, how we consume it also much like clothing, you know, how we, we can kind of think back to childhood and how we were dressed. Um, whether we liked it or not, you know, um, it was only as good as our resources. And um, then we figured out a way growing up how we wanted to dress ourselves. I also think of connections between, like psychologically between food and fashion also with like, you know, not just nostalgia of just thinking back to the taste of something or the smell of something or, you know, when you, how, you know, how you have that with food, but then with clothing, you can see a certain garment or put Mm. something on that's related to family. You know, it just takes you back or reminds you of your, your childhood, but it could also be, um, oh, actually just as an example of that, I I love wearing student work and there was a Pratt student uh, here in Brooklyn who designed a coat uh, a fashion design graduate, and I, I wear, I got it maybe two years ago, and I wear the coat, and it always gets compliments, and it's just, you know, it's great because it's original, and it's like, you can can't you get describe it the coat? It's a huge blanket, like a big comforter that this brilliant student designed into this large cape-like, dramatic, full-size draping coat. So imagine, you know, just this a comforter. And then, you know, given arms, you know, constructed into this whole just sweeping cape. But then, you know, and also the way it's cut along the bottom, it, you know, it's sort of uneven. It's just, it just, it's so dramatic. And twice, two days ago and over a year ago, I've had two women come up to me um, and just said, look, I'm sorry, not to be weird, but that, co- that blanket, I don't know where you got that coat, but like, that was my childhood blanket. Oh, and it funny. just got, it just took them back, you know? And so, so that, that's how, you know, food and clothing can be linked to nostalgia, but also aspiration, you know, um, some things I joke about with my students is sort of like making it dress, like thinking of clothes or things that you get, like when you quote unquote, make it, or oh, yeah. you decide once I make it, or as soon as I get this raise, I'm going to buy this kind of shoe, you know, also with food too, of just like, um, Rap music's a really good uh, example or paradigm for some of these things because they talk, because also oftentimes the arc of rap songs, um, especially I think of Brooklyn-based Biggie, Biggie Smalls, about looking back to the past and telling you where he is now. Um, so he celebrates that through clothing and like the swinging around of champagne, you know, to say like, this is where I used to be. I haven't forgotten about it, but look at where I am now. So food and clothing as a trajectory. So just thinking about like, you know, also food. Like I used to eat, you know, fill in the blank, you know, just some sort of cheap food as you would see it. And then now I get to eat lobster and drink champagne all the time. And, you know, so just think calamari Wednesday, <laughs> calamari Wednesday. Yeah. So yeah, just these can, you know, there's so many 
ripe connections that you can make um, between food and fashion. I love talking about food and fashion. And like one darker thing, though, is um, I was mentioning before we went on air also of food and clothing as sister industries were built off the backs of slaves in the United States. Um, so respectively, um, the sugar cane um, harvested by predominantly black slaves, um, which then birthed, you know, amongst other foods and harvests, a whole booming food industry that capitalism enjoys now. And then also um, the clothing industry off of um, the harvesting of cotton. And so um, harvested by slaves. And so, and that birthed a whole industry also um, through the Civil War to today, um, thanks to capitalism. So, I mean, they're just, and now they're both, other things that are being brought to bear now in the food and fashion industry is continued, believe it or not, slave labor, mm-hmm. you know, ethical issues, you know, just like, you know, it was actually the slow food movement that inspired um, the conversations we're having in sustainability now in fashion of just like these labels or ideas of like, where do you know where your food is made? Look, check the label. Is it organic? You know, can you trace it back to, you know, a certain farm or, you know, and what were the ethical standards of how that food was made? Likewise, we're doing that in fashion now of like, who makes your clothes? Do you know, is there blood on this label, so to speak? You know, it was, how are the people being paid? How are they being treated? Um, so they're also, they're, they're, these sister industries are continuing to follow a similar trajectory when it comes to consumption practices, which brings it back to our first question of just like trends and consumerism. Yeah, I feel like food and fashion, because it's something that we do every day, um, it, it kind of the light way of looking at it is that like it doesn't really matter, right? Like we eat the food and we mm. just like get rid we of it. We take it for granted. Right, and with fast fashion is like we wear it for a day and then it's gone. And so how do, do these small quick choices actually reveal a lot about our political leaning, social, cultural, economic, et cetera, et cetera. Well, now if you're conscious and you care, you know, if you, I mean, you bring up a good point. Food and fashion is really, as industries have spoiled us, where we do not see the hands that make it. We don't see the process anymore. You think that the dress that you bought or the sweater, this loomed sweater that you bought was just so easy to get your hands on and that it was just made instantly, you know, yeah. and you don't really know all the work that goes into making that food or what seasonal food is, you know, oh, this type of food really shouldn't be available right now in the grocery store, but you don't know that. So what it comes down to is uneducated consumers and as educators and chefs who were conscious and, and interested in progressing the industry and, uh, and everyone else who works in the food system, every single person, and the fashion system. We've got to educate ourselves and we've got to educate our consumers because that will bring about positive change in how we um, consume things and hopefully consume, if not less, more uh, thoughtfully. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kimberly Cho, mm-hmm. you were talking earlier about how um, the tricky point is where y- people start to profit off, our, off a culture that's not theirs, right? And so are we doomed to only profiting off the culture that is ours, right? Like I would feel as if I was equally appropriating if I made Chinese food at a restaurant because it's not really my culture. You know, I, I grew mean, up in America. Do you feel it's your culture? Do you feel connected to it? Like, do you want to do in that? In that I look Chinese. and it, But then, you know, if, if, that, if we're taking that argument where it's like yeah. I'm only allowed to profit off making Chinese food. I can't make Mexican food and make money off of it because that would be messed up. No, I mean, like, I think you, I mean, I I don't think it's that simple. Um, 
I don't think it's that simple. And also, like, if you do feel, I mean, like, I feel connected to making Taiwanese food. I don't think I make the best Taiwanese food. I probably couldn't make it, like, in a restaurant setting. But I've made some shit where I'm like, this is really, this is, like, very good. And I'm very proud of it. And I, in my fantasies of having pop-ups or whatever, I'm like, I could do this. Um, but I think, you know, I think what we're dealing with is the fact that there is an imbalance and that primarily folks of color and primarily black and brown folks have less access to resources, have less access to capital, um, commercial space, etc. Um, so one of the reasons, and, and so we're in a space where based on numbers and history, white folks have more opportunity um, and are more able to capitalize on that opportunity. Yeah, because I've worked for the past two years in Japanese restaurants and I feel so connected to that food and I feel like I know that food better than Chinese food in some ways. And so I, the, being the devil on the shoulder, right? Like when a white chef quotes or claims to know a certain regional Chinese food so well, what is different about that than me claiming to know Japanese food? I mean, food? I think, I mean, I think it's a little bit different when we're talking about different groups of folks of color. I th and because of the history of colonialism and colorism in the world, but also, I mean, increasingly, as I've been engaged in this conversation about culinary appropriation, I mean, I really do think that anybody should be able to do whatever they want, cook whatever they want, make money off doing that, as long as they do it respectfully and they do the homework and they engage and they engage in a, in a intentional way. But the thing is, in our capitalist imperialist society, the, the system isn't really set up for black and brown folks to succeed. Um, and therefore there is this imbalance. So I think we need to be conscious of that. And I'm not saying like, if your dream is to be like a, a white guy making sushi, you need to abandon that dream. Just, I think it's just a, about being extra conscious of, about that. Um, and I think it is a, a fraught subject and I think it will maybe remain that way for the rest of our lifetimes, at least until we figure out the language for it. Um, I think because, I mean, I think maybe because of human nature and colorism and also institutional racism, maybe we'll never get to the point where there is a quote-unquote even playing field and everyone can do whatever they want and have the resources to do so. Um, or maybe the planet is so broken we'll all be burnt by the sun before there's a chance to do that. Um, there are a lot of factors going against equality and equity. <laughs> But um, I think it's like as long as we're humans on this planet right now and in this capitalist system, what are the ways that if you are going to, if you have the freedom to be self-determining and pursue what it is that you want and to be able to make money and take care of yourself and, and take care of your family in the ways that you want, like how do you do that in an intentional and mindful way? Yeah. And also give people credit. Yeah. Just um, give people credit. Just Tying on to that, it also another connection I just thought of with food and fashion is uh, one of my students at Pratt, um, I was talking to her about the, well, I was doing a lecture on the connections of fashion and activism and the, and the food industry, uh, I'm sorry, fashion and sustainability and kind of situating it into how it's been inspired by the food industry's discourse about thoughtfulness and respect and sourcing and authenticity, you know, because some of the conversations, I'm no food expert, but just from what I do know. Um, and she was inspired by, you know, she, my student, she was really concerned about fast fashion and how it's prevalent in the communities of color that she came from. She's a Latina girl from California. 
And she felt that the options for people of color out there mm. were, you know, it was like a food desert. Because I was kind of mentioning, I was making that connection with her, and she loved that. She was like, I want to explore that for a final project. Fashion deserts, if you will, you know? And she was just thinking, like, how can, you know, we get folks of color, people, you know, because it's a class issue, too. I don't want to just, like, conflate class and race. But, um, you know, when you have people living in not only food deserts, but fashion deserts, you know, where they only, you know, shop, and I won't name names, but, you know, brands that just, you know, it's just fast fashion, $10 shirts. Like Kim said, it's systemic, you know. They're wearing this stuff, you know. We have no right to wag our finger at them, like, do you know where that was made, or do you know the, the ethical violations of that? They're just trying to get clothes that they can afford, and if they can get a ton of clothes for, like, a job interview or for work, you know, for under 50 bucks or under 100 bucks, then they're going to do that. Um so it gets really complicated, but I'd really love for us to kind of figure out how we can serve people in these communities where it isn't just a privileged thing or isn't it luxury yeah. to wear ethical clothing, you know, or things that are just sustainably made, you know, they should not be left out of the equation. They need to be educated, but how can we make these things accessible and affordable to them, just like food? Mm-hmm. This and we're, we're not talking about, and, and, and it's also realistically, not everybody can grow their own food and make their own clothes, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or not everybody wants to and either. Not, and I some mean, people like, just I, don't I'd, care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, can I talk about where I'm wearing today? Yes. I forgot to answer the earlier part of fashioning the, the self, I guess. So I'm just going to, um, I... I used to write about fashion and I don't anymore and used to go to fashion shows and all this stuff and, and I shopped at vintage clothes a lot more. That's how Kim and I met actually at One of a Find mm -hmm. in Prospect Heights. Shout out to One of a Find. But it's not as big of a part of my life now but it still brings me great pleasure to wear things that make me feel good, that have some sort of story behind them. I still collect vintage when I can. Um, I wear... I don't really wear as elaborate things that I used to. I ride my bike a lot, which makes it a little tricky sometimes. But I am wearing a, a pair of knockoff, please, please, Isimoyaki drop crotch pants that I found at Beacon's Closet on 13th and 5th. Shout out to the greatest Beacon's Closet in New I York City. I love that location. And I'm also wearing a, a fleece. <laughs> uh, I'm wearing indigo Isimoyaki pants, an indig a, a fleece bomber jacket and olive green uh, a yellow sweater, and then um, what turns out to be Margella high tops that I got at a Serving at a swap today. at a swap. But I the main thing I wanted to bring up is like wearing the drop crotch pants is sort of like man spreading. I can ex like spread my legs kind of wide when I'm sitting or just walking, and I feel like so much more assertive. <laughs> so that's a, a an taking observation. Up space. Yes, space, I've been taking up space. I, it's an observation that I've had. And now I think about it when I see men wearing low, low slung pants. Mm. I'm like, how powerful do you feel? And I'm like, you know, my outfit isn't walking as with my legs apart. My outfit is not as elaborate, but it does have a connection to my friend Kim here. This sweater I'm wearing, this sweet little vintage sweater with um, um, flowers like applique onto it. It's kind of 1960s ish. It's from one of a find where I met Kim, and um, I'm wearing this authentic. Uh, blouse from Hungary and so um, from that I found at Beacon's Closet <laughs> and 
Um, I'm also asserting, so I, I see your man spreading, and I raise you a sheer bra that I'm wearing under this, which was very bold, actually. Um, I'm wearing this, like, sheer bra I got. So it is exposing, and then I'm wearing this gauzy Hungarian blouse. So if you look close enough, it is very... But I'm just like, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and then I'm wearing um, some high-waist pants. This is actually a big deal. A couple of my students were laughing because I don't normally wear pants. Only for, like, working out. I'm not a pants girl. I don't own a pair of jeans. Like, I just don't wear pants. Kim doesn't own jeans. I, do, I don't own jeans, and I love dresses and skirts, and I just prefer just to... I've, I'm more comfortable in skirts and dresses. So I finally broke down with the cold weather and just the needs for mobility to go get me some pants. And I went to Aritzia, and I got some high-waist black skinny pants. Cool. Shout out to Aritzia, because I'm not... I actually... Another thing about me... I don't really buy new clothing. Rarely, rarely do I actually go to traditional stores. Um, I just wear all vintage or thrift or student-made clothing. So with the exception of like tights, underwear, and workout clothes, that's the only reason, and shoes, I'll go buy something brand new from a regular store. So these pants are kind of a big deal for me right now. I'm also wearing exercise clothes underneath my outfit. And I'm wearing my Eddie Eddie Murphy uh, lambswool coat. (laughs) No hat. I think that's all we have time for today. So I actually am wearing a combo last. um, I'm wearing pants from Ritzy and exercise clothes. But yeah, this is meant to be eaten on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you so much for both joining me today. Thanks for having us, Coral. This is fun. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.